This episode of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter board. The Kilter board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilter board layout, and the newer home board layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. The new map feature helps you find and connect to Kilter boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. And this is the second episode of season four, conversation with Stacy Bear. Stacy has contributed to a couple different climbing zines, and I consider him a major, major part of it. Um, his craft and storytelling—he he tells a story very well. Um, he also kind of lines up with the ethos of the zine of being vulnerable. Um, and just kind of telling a, a messy story, but also getting at a lot of good truths. The, uh, this conversation we had, we had it over the internet, which is something I rarely do. And I, anyone knows me, I avoid a Zoom meeting at all costs. I'd rather just talk to people in person. But I do have a few friends, kind of like my pen pal friends, who I have long conversations with on the phone from time to time. And with Stacy, I felt comfortable enough to have this conversation because I know him well and because most of our friendship is sustained by phone calls and different things like that. We do rarely see each other, even though I know we would love to see each other more. But I'm going to let this one speak for itself. You can reference the Climbing Zine book for Climbing Past War. And then he's also got an essay in volume 12, which will actually be going out of print soon as well. But that's another favorite issue of mine. But yeah, I hope you all enjoy this conversation. Um, I always love talking to Stacy, and he's just a great guy, and he's a searcher. He's always um, searching for a greater truth and greater meaning, and he's very open and vulnerable with his own struggles, which is, I think, something um, we could all do better. It's something that I really admire about him, and I try to do that with my own writing and my own work. This episode is sponsored by Patagonia. 1972, Chenard Equipment, Bet the Farm, 
urging climbers to stop using their best-selling product in order to protect the rock. Clean climbing, making the switch from pitons to chalks, fundamentally changed both the art of the sport and the ethos of the community. It was climbing's first environmental movement and instilled the values that drive Patagonia to this day. But more importantly, it was a challenge. What are climbers capable of achieving in order to protect the places we love? 50 years later, Patagonia is asking that question again. They're still committed to the vertical wilderness and putting style over summit. It's a commitment to the sport we love, their technical climb product, and the planet we're still working to save. Go to patagonia.com slash cleanclimbing to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Sterling. A wet rope is heavy, hard to handle, and can be flat out dangerous. That's why Sterling developed their new line of dry climbing ropes using Zero's technology. Zero's is a whole new way to manufacture UIAA certified dry ropes that are more effective, wear resistant, better for the environment, and only available from Sterling. Visit sterlingrope.com to learn more and use the code DIRTBACK for 15% off. And you can also find these links in our show notes. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. All right. I am talking to my good friend, Stacy Bear. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for linking up with me, Stacy. Any opportunity to spend time with you is worth my time. I, yeah. I hope, yeah, I know I've been excited about this for a while, and I just started giggling this morning when I remembered that I got to talk to you today. <laughs> and I started giggling when you sent me that picture of you on that little plastic pony, <laughs> or whatever right. that was. Tiny little horses. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I sent one of my buddies, one of my buddies, when I sent him that, he's like, you keep sending me blackmail-worthy photos. And I'm like, I send these out to everybody, dude. Like, I just think it's important to take pictures and moments that we should all laugh at just the absurdity of life and the beauty of it even even now i think it's important to recognize that and and celebrate it and it worked it definitely made me smile and i was like you know believe it or not i do get nervous before interviews and just in like the preparation stage and stuff and that was like all right i'm just i'm talking to stacy but i guess the reason i i am nervous um or just got a little bit nervous is you know i i look up to you and and you're such a uh, point of inspiration and I feel like you're you're a great conversationalist too, and even just having like an hour every hour long phone call we've ever had like could be a podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I've always enjoyed from our very first interaction down in Ure all the way. I guess what was that, 2010? So 12 years ago. Yeah, that was and, uh, early um, 2011. Yeah. Yeah. So wow, was it not quite 12 years ago? But yeah, early 2011, and ever since then. Yeah, just the opportunity, and I think one of the things I've really struggled with in my life is self-belief and self-confidence that my story is worthy, that I have a story to tell, and I, you know, you're one of the folks who's who's been in that corner from the day we met, encouraging me to share my story and hone my craft as a storyteller. So I, I really appreciate that, and also look up to you. Um, and I think it's fun when you get the. It's kind of like that battle of politeness um, writ large, right? When people are like <laughs> yeah. trying to open the door for one another. So yeah. it's, uh, it's mutual. And that's that's nice when it is too, because that means neither of us have to stay on a pedestal. Yeah, and um, originally I was going to actually start a second podcast uh, with the climbing zine, and uh, you were going to be the first guest, and I was going to kind of more center the podcast just around zine stories. And then I realized you really shouldn't. It's kind of a dumb idea to start a second podcast when you can barely keep up with your first podcast. And so this one is kind of melded into, you know, it just started off me reading uh, my stories as book on tape. And then once the lockdown stopped, 
I was able to do some more interviews in person. And the reason you were going to be the first interview, and I, I just kind of meld, you know, blended these ideas of talking to people about their stories. And a lot of, if not all the people I interview on the podcast have written for the zine or connected to it. But we literally bonded. It was kind of like, you know, friendship at first sight, like love at first sight. You know, you hear that. <laughs> but we were at um, this event called Gimps on Ice, put That's on right. by Paradox Sports. Hilarious name. And uh, I, ha- I was just sitting there, I think, with my black and white zines. The first climbing zines were black and white. And most people have never even seen those now because we only printed off like 100 of each. And hopefully some collectors have those. But the very first sentence in the very first zine was, without climbing, I'd be dead or in jail. And for some reason, you, you just opened right up to that. I mean, I guess you opened it up because <laughs> it was the first page, but um, you just kind of looked at me and you're like, the same thing is true for me. And it, it was just kind of, there was just like this moment of like, we were literally just friends from that one sentence. I don't know. Did you feel that too? Or is that just me? No, I definitely did. And I think it was one of those moments too, because I was still, uh, so much happened from that specific climbing trip, like so many ways and so many people that I met on that, my first ice climbing trip, have had a, a huge impact on my life. You know, you, uh, Luis Benitez, DJ Skelton was on that trip, uh, Mo, and just all these different amazing people that have had Sean O'Neill, Timmy O'Neill, that have had this huge impact. Malcolm Daly, I could, the list goes on, right? Mitsu Iwasaki, that's how I actually ran into Mitsu the first time. We didn't realize it until um, a couple years later, but we had met each other, I believe, during that weekend. And um, just so many people who have had such a huge impact on my life from that specific climbing trip. And I think it was one of the things where I look back on my own journey and where I've been on and what I've been on. And I think it, it, at times, I think I've that identity of climbing saved my life was so critical to me that when I began to question whether or not that was true, I, I was like, can I be, you know, and you and I have had these conversations before about like, am I still a climber? What does it mean to be a climber? What does it mean to be in the outdoors or those type of things. But I think it was also for me, I think what was so powerful reading that and then learning about your story and the fact that you weren't a veteran, looking back on it, I think it might've been the biggest crack in this foundation I had for my own identity at the time, which was so much around veterans owning trauma and other people not necessarily being worthy of having trauma or worthy of having pain because it's like, do you know what I did? And do you know that I served you and your country and everything Mm -hmm. else like that? And so it was, I had a very combative stance towards that for a really long time. And it was, you know, and it was a way to protect my own identity and my own safety during that. But I think reading that and having spent time, you know, with a bunch of people who had lost limbs, lost eyesight, many of them weren't veterans because the majority of people who do lose a limb or lose eyesight or have spinal cord injuries are not veterans. And then seeing somebody else who, like me, was physically whole or, you know, um, the, you know, hit the norm for what physicality looks like right now. And just the willingness to say that right away to somebody else and put that out into the world, that's the type of vulnerability that I wasn't familiar with, right? Mm. Like you always put on a polite face, you always drive things forward. And so I think looking back on that, I think that was that statement and meeting you really shook the foundations of who I was at that point. And, and I think probably reverberated with a number of other interactions I had over the years after that, that allowed me to step into and grow into a different identity. 
a more positive, healthy identity for myself and for others. That was probably around the time period where I, I just started writing about depression and, and mental health stuff. And the experiences I had, I didn't write about them for like um, 10 or 12 years, really, after having them. And then once I opened, because I, I honestly thought I was the only person like alive that went through what I went through, you know, like I was literally like no one else. This is something I experienced. And then especially now these days, like I think everyone realizes a mental health episode or, you know, I've learned since then too, because it's like, you feel like you can get better from depression, but then it's always, you know, like the potential of things coming back is always there too. So it's like mental health is a, a lifelong journey. And at that time I probably thought it was this thing I went through and then, once I shared it, I saw other people reacted to it, you know? Um, I think that's kind of a cool part of, of writing is just putting it out there and seeing how people react. And, you know, me personally, like sharing that has been the most important thing I've done in my writing. And then the other layer of that is connecting with people like you. I, I, I still reference that first story you wrote in volume five. I actually have it sitting here right in front of me. Like I still reference that. Or if I, you know, meet a veteran or just um, someone who could relate to your story. I tell them about it and they look it up and they read it. And um, to me, that's so powerful. And it's like such an honor that you would let me help you tell your story. Like that was just, um, it's been an honor. Well, and I think it was, yeah, well, thanks for that. I mean, I think it's, it's just the, it's, it's the challenge of leaning in to people who, who lean into you. Right. And if you're in a negative situation, and you're sad, you can lean into somebody who leans into you and it can end up being a difficult situation over time. And I've, I've, I'm going through one of those situations right now. And I think we do that. And I think we, but I think figuring out how to continue to lean in and say, this person's trying to lean in and support me. How can I support them? Or what can I do? And a conversation I had this morning was, I think too often, you know, they're saying, hey, I want to help you. And, and don't worry if you can't help me right away. Right. They were letting me know that they believed that over time the relationship would be reciprocal, but it didn't have to be immediately reciprocal. Mm. And I think we're in this time and space right now where because of how fast communication can move and resources can move, we believe in this necessity for immediate reciprocity. And I think going back to what you were saying is, you know, I felt so, you felt so isolated. Who else can have these experiences? And I think that's one of the most damaging things about a lot of the mental health stuff is we we think we're isolated, we think we're alone, we think nobody else is going through this, and we don't share it. And what can that do to crater us? And we live in a society right now which encourages and prizes disconnection and this this lie around individuality. And so many, you know, especially um, men like you and I, a lot of our counterparts and our peers, you know, I mean, the, the research is staggering, right, about, you know, the number one victim of gun violence is white men to self-inflicted gun wounds right i mean it's the 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 statistics around that i think are so high and then i think the other thing that happens is is we we oftentimes end up building an identity uh, as a negative in response to something else because it's oftentimes easier to do that and so if we have identified that nobody else has gone through the pain and suffering and nobody else can understand the pain and suffering that i've gone through any attempt to reconcile that or for people to say hey you know you're not alone becomes an attack on the identity that's got us through in many ways, right? Like the survivalist instinct, because, you know, it's like that old white snake song. I remember being like 10 or 11 and being rejected at the sixth grade dance. And like that white snake song, song came on, you know, I was born <laughs> to walk alone and, and feeling like this, you know, I get this song. And um, 
I think so many of us in our generation have internalized those kind of hard rock anthems, which are bullshit, right? Yeah. Like, you're not born to walk alone. You're not walking alone. You might be really lonely. You might feel really isolated, but, but you don't have to be. Uh, and, and how do we remove those barriers and everything? And I remember the first time, you know, one of my male friends said, I love you with no qualification, right? It was just, you, you know, I, I want you to know I love you. And just how that almost stopped my beating heart, right? Because it wasn't, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about bad 90s jokes, but it's like, you know, you'd be like, oh, I love you, but no homo, right? And it's like, why does that, why is that even a thing? Right. Why do we have to say that, right? Because we, we have such a limited vocabulary oftentimes in English language around some of those things. And, and I think being able to tell the story and, and, you know, I wouldn't tell that same story now about my coming home. It's such a specific story to a specific time in my life. And I think that's the wonderful thing about it is we tell stories, we allow ourselves to move, we allow ourselves to grow, but it's really hard for other people who've, who've read those stories or heard those stories or seen us during those times. And it's easier for other people to keep us in whatever container, they, how they, however they first learned about us may be. And I oftentimes think about, you know, what would Stacy of 2007, when I first came home from Iraq, say to Stacy of 2022 or Stacy of 2012 when I first wrote with you. And I think that's what it was, was this invitation, like, hey, you should write your story, you should tell your story, and I'd love to help share it. And it's that leaning in of, of oh, my story is worthy of sharing. People want to hear my story. And I think believing that, and it's taken me years since then to really believe and buy into the fact that, uh, that I do have a story worth telling, that I do have gifts and ideas and thoughts that the community wants and maybe even needs. And, and it's just that process, that constant evolving process. And I think, you know, I mean, we've joked about my writing process, which is two turds and, and a golden <laughs> egg, right? And, and I think you, you can't skip that, right? Once you have, a, like, you can't skip over the fact that the first few drafts of whatever you do are likely going to be difficult. And I think that's where we really struggle right now because it's like, well, the first thing you put out, if it's bad, it's just like, well, stop. <laughs> right. A, your writing philosophy is a great one to reference because I think someone could read your story and be like, damn, that's a, I could never attain that level of storytelling. But like if we showed them the first few drafts, like you said, the <laughs> turds, like my, I'm, I'm just amazed where you, yeah, you literally, you just pull it together on like the third or fourth try. You know, it's like Kobe Bryant getting an air ball or something and then scoring 60 points. Like any aspiring writer should know that it can take a long, long time for the goods to come out. And I'm guessing any, any sort of artistic thing, you know, like, yeah. And I still write that way. Right. I mean, it still takes me, you know, I mean, anybody who's known me for any amount of time. And there are also times, right. Where I just fling out thoughts and I'm like, Hey, do you think there's anything here? You know, I mean, you've been on those emails. I mean, it's you, Doug and Brooke, right. I think are the, <laughs> the three outside of my, maybe my wife and my brother who get, but, and, and, and I think you guys actually get a lot more, um, Brooks also, you know, part of the androgynous, uh, androgynous name men's club, but are kind of the, you know, and it's like, normally one of you will be back and be like, oh yeah, you know, t try this or try that. And just with a move and everything. And I, and I know right now too, like, I just really feel this need to be writing more and more and trying to create space to do that in my life, um, or telling stories more and more. And, and what does that look like? Um, and, and I've wanted to do it for a long, long time, but all the different pressures or beliefs that I've created about myself um, that have said, you know, you can't, you can't push, you can't take, you know, certain risks. And I feel like that's one of the things climbing allowed for me to do too, was, was always finding that I was always on the edge of expectation. And a lot of times 
that was good enough. And, and the times that I went beyond the edge of expectation and, f- and followed into my own heart, into my own beliefs, um, and those who, who supported around me, I'd always go out there and then there something would be happen. And I'm a big, you know, and I think it's easy for all of us to do this, especially right now. I'm a, what's the word? Catastrophizer, right? Like I'm, I'm an apocalyptic thinker. I always think about the worst. And so I find myself out beyond the edge of expectation or expectations that I believe other people have for me that I've internalized whether or not they do. And then I'm like, Oh, something bad happened. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I can live on the edge of that. And so a lot of people, you know, maybe, you know, for them, they're like, Oh, that's really crazy. But it's still rarely is it where I fully wanted to go uh, because people, you know, get nervous when you go out there. They're nervous when you're on the edge, but at least you're on the edge. And I think that's, Right now, that's the work we're we're all called into doing is to is to push beyond that edge into into creating our own expectations for the way that we want to live our lives and I, and that you know it feels really hard because there's a lot of people right now who are screaming at us and and shouting at us to come back into um, an ever confining set of expectations where I think it's almost like if if I can't be happy, you shouldn't be happy either, mm. and that's what it really feels like is mm. there's just a shit ton of hazing going on right now you know and you can see that with like well i had to do it and i made it through and it was painful and it sucked for me but you know it's like all this stuff i hear about like people like oh you know gen whatever gen z they're they're just entitled and it's like yeah they're entitled to a life of joy and fulfillment and community and grace and laughter and love and they're just no longer willing in the same way that our generation, Gen X, evidently have been willing to say, okay, you're right, I'm entitled. I have to live a miserable life for X amount of years before moving forward. And I think, I think you're seeing that right now, with people just losing their minds, that the rest of the population are just unwilling to be miserable. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wrote about how I feel like we're all the same generation. Like I'm 43. You're, are you 43 or 42? I'm 43. 43. Right. I turned 44 in August. Okay. That's right. Cause you're, you're slightly older than me. Okay. Um, I, I feel like ever like we're the oldest of the young people, but I feel like we're all connected in something that transcends any name they want to give our generation. You know, like all young people are connected and like our generation truly hasn't even come to lead the nation yet you know what i mean like we're still young people in the grand scheme of things um even being in our early 40s totally totally well yeah this is our (laughs) last year of early 40s for me right like 44 like you're solid mid 40s now Uh i live in michigan now i live in grand rapids michigan and yesterday the picture that i sent and you can use that (laughs) you can post that for People be really confused why a large man is on top of a small <laughs> pony named Sandy. People that haven't so met you, my, <laughs> people that know you, yeah. be like, oh yeah, that's a, that's on brand. <laughs> yeah, that's Stacy. Look at Stacy being Stacy. Um, and then he had to pay a thousand dollars because he broke that little pony. <laughs> <laughs> no, they encouraged me to get on. I was like, are you sure? Um, but so I was at Meyer Grocery Store, right, which is this big grocery chain, and and the you know, and there's the founder of Meyer Grocery Store was a Dutch immigrant who learned to be a barber because every city needed a barber, and it was like it's like a recession, you know, it was a recession-proof job at the time, right? Like nobody had nobody had portable razors, and so I mean, how recession-proof is it, right? But 1934, 50 years old, 
he and his wife, who was 48, opened up a grocery store. And they had never done retail before, let alone grocery retail. And, you know, and now it's, you know, it's this crazy multi-billion dollar company. And I don't, I actually don't think we should aspire necessarily to be multi-billion dollar companies. But what, it was such a solid reminder of the ways that we can and ought to live our lives. And especially right now, it's a system set up that like the, the leadership in our, in our country, by and large, are people who have uh, expendable time and income. And that's not everybody by any means. There are people who have worked incredibly hard to, to do that. And I think it's, it's one of the challenges, right? Is like, if you're moving towards health and you're moving towards joy, you, most of the time you're not gonna be willing to make, to invest in that level of sacrifice because you wanna take advantage of what the day has to offer and what the people around you have to offer and the environment around you have to offer. And I think that's, yeah, so what does it mean to step into a position of leadership like, because if it means I have to give up, you know, being able to take an hour here or there in the middle of the day so that I can look after, not just look after my daughter, but play Legos with her, go ghost busting as we walk the dog or get my toenails painted or, um, you know, work on her play and costume design for her teddy bears, like, then I don't know if I want to be a leader. And I think we need to be creating more spaces where more of us are doing those type of things or have access to whatever that looks like in our own lives, right? And I think that's the that's the challenge is is that we're we have because of that uh, we have ceded leadership to our parents and our our parents' generation, and there's a lot of anger in that generation. Mm, wow, that's but deep. like you said, we're all one generation too because like unless we're gonna work through that anger and then also come to a place of forgiveness where, you know, I heard the quote the other day and I'm, I, I don't know who to attribute this to, but it isn't me, but the, something like, you know, forgiveness is when you stop hoping for a better past. Hmm. And I think about, you know, my own challenges with my own parents and there's a lot of things I can be pissed off at my parents about. And it's not that I have to forgive them for everything. Because there's a lot of amazing stuff they did too, but I'm now at a point in my life where I can have compassion for the fact that their lives weren't perfect either, and that they were dealing with a lot of stuff and generational trauma. Right, is the, is the catchphrase in the moment, but like, who in America doesn't suffer from some level of generational trauma? Mm. And I think until we really begin to address that and have compassion for, we can have compassion for different people and still hold them accountable. Right. I mean, uh, the great meme artist, Len Nessifer, uh, <laughs> I think it was he who talked about climbing zinc contributor. Know, uh, we, yeah. We yep. don't have to, we don't have to judge people in the past by our current standards, but we can recognize that we can do better than what they did with more information and knowledge and move on. And that was all in a meme. No, I think he said it. And I mean, you know, I mean, Len, Len shifts between memes and <laughs> moments of deep profundity. That's that's sure the modern. Of, uh, that's a great modern assholery. communicator, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, right. I want to uh, I want to dive into your your first story, and the story that we've been referencing is called "Climbing Past War," and it was originally published in Volume Five, which is actually that was our first all color issue. That one is also out of print. We probably did. A few hundred copies of that one but luckily your piece was republished in the climbing zine book um, yeah which has been a very popular book actually I, 
Just sold a couple of those today, and that's a collection of our best stories from volume one to eleven. This is your the golden egg or after your your pooping. <laughs> but there was so <laughs> much interesting uh, material in your story, and you know you talked about like veterans um, seeing the world outside of your veteran community um, and talking about you know other people that have suffered or other people that have lost limbs. For me, this was an insight into the world of veterans and most of the veterans that I've become friends with are ones that became climbers after going away to, to war essentially. Um, so I didn't have, you know, like I didn't know you before you went to war. I didn't know Chad Jukes before he went to war. Um, and some of the other veterans that I've, uh, that I've known. Um, but you, you know, I'm not convinced Jim Henson didn't create Chad Jukes. <laughs> Jim Henson. <laughs> And I love Chad so much. I love like, Chad I just, too. I just got, I just got warm thinking about Chad. And that was a, I mean, yeah, he just like, there's nothing better than like Chad gets up to you, right? And he gives you a hug and he just starts giggling. Like yeah. he hasn't even started speaking. And he's know. just giggling. He's so excited to be alive and, and with you and you just can't help but, but, uh, but to be in a better mood when Chad's around. Absolutely. He's another person I met pretty uh cosmically as well that like weekend. i met you well i had met him way that before that in indian creek oh wow yeah, yeah that was the first weekend when i met you it was the first weekend when I you met, met him yeah 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 um but one of the lines in there, there i mean there's so much to to dive into and so much that's interesting um including your line about your cousin that was a deadhead you're like i didn't want to smell like that so i didn't become a deadhead <laughs> 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 which if people Love know me do. that was my gateway to dirtbagging was um the dead and I actually got turned on to the dead in michigan um i don't know if i ever told you that no. so michigan is essential to my path of dirtbagging oh fantastic um your your new your new homeland but you a couple really interesting things and one is that you're like the hardest the hardcore dirtbagging i ever did in my life was when you were in the military yeah, I mean, you know, sleeping in the dirt, right? I mean, sleeping in the dirt, um, it's, yeah, and rolling around. And I think, you know, I, I think I wrote in there, it was an opportunity, again, edge of expectation, right? It was, I could do that. I could live that lifestyle. And there was valor in that, right? There was bravery in that. And people were grateful for that and told me I was doing the right thing. Whereas, you know, any other, any other life, that um, you lead where you spend that amount of time dirty, not showering, rubbing makeup on your life, uh, on your face, you know, rubbing makeup on your face and, um, and rolling around shooting at each other and, and you'd get in a lot of trouble. And, and I think there, you know, during that time frame when I wrote that, I think I still was talking a lot about how one of the powerful things about the outdoors was that it replicated all what at the time I considered the good aspects of war, right? The right. positive aspects of war. And in some ways it is that dirtbagging lifestyle. And I think where I've come to now over the years is that the reason war feels so good and the reason that kind of dirtbagging feels so good is because it's a shadow of what you can have in the outdoors, right? But the, the real challenge is, is that war is way more accessible and battle and the black and white ideation that we try to get to, which drives war is way more accessible than time outdoors or, you know, falling around the grateful dead 
or you know being a dirtbag kayaker climber or whatever and, and we've set up a whole system now that has slowly made it increasingly difficult for a vagabond to live unless that vagabond is in the military and i and but we know there's something that attracts people to that lifestyle um and it's not just the overt patriotism or ability to serve even though many of us maybe really do believe in that or mask our other desires with with those larger values that's pretty fucked up isn't it that war is more accessible than you know going out in nature yeah but it's it it is but it's also like if you look at you know i think um christopher hedges right wrote war is a force that gives us meaning and and it is right i mean there's all sorts of studies out there that talk about when populations and community groups are happiest and most connected and oftentimes it comes in these horrific experiences because what you're working towards or fighting against is so clear and it's just not as messy as the rest of everyday life and people are united in a clear sense of purpose whether or not that purpose you know and that that purpose can be morally ambiguous and um and war is that accessibility whereas climbing is not as accessible or windsurfing or kite surfing or skiing or you know whitewater kayaking it's just harder to get to there's there's less geographic experience of it um the the cost is high the the time takes time but for war you know any 18 year old kid can for the most part access that rush right right wherever they are and i think that's also why you see the rise of so many of these extreme groups because they're tapping into this desire to feel connected to something larger than themselves and this desire to push themselves physically and find a sense of purpose because people are looking we're wired for that connection we're wired for that sense of purpose and until we can make the outdoors and other opportunities for deep connection you know music is a big one art is another one um then continue to be an incredibly violent place and in america i don't think we fully realize that you know as we've exported war whether or not you agree with that war or not the reality is we have been exporting war and combat for generations and at some point that was naturally going to come home to roost right i mean mm. for every action there's a equal and opposite reaction and i think um for every action there's several reactions right that happen there's multiple things that happen so um eventually we were going to get that blow back here and and I think that's where we're at right now. Mm. And where do you feel like you're at from the time you wrote that essay and like how you were feeling about climbing and you're so happy you bridged that gap like we we both had this time period we weren't sure if we wanted to live and then we found that will to live through climbing so you kind of bridged that gap for me it was like just I was just a depressed kid and didn't have any purpose and was on way too many substances that I was mixing together without any exercise and it just sent me down a a mental health um, spiral but you kind of bridged that gap into climbing and then you've lived 10 years of life since then is war something that like will always be in your psyche and always affect you or do you feel like you have t you have found those pleasures in the outdoors and that's kind of helped balance you out or um 
Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a that's a tough question, right? I mean, during the pandemic, you know, so I, I mean, I had gone on this journey with the outdoors, and I was to the point of telling people like, look, you don't need to go get regular therapy, you don't need drugs, you don't need mm. medication, you just need to get outside, and and that was in reaction to me have had having also like a really negative experience with with therapy or not not finding the right therapist, not finding the right um, connection through that and, and what that worked. And, and, and climbing did work for me. And it was an opportunity also for me to step up. And, and, I, and I remember, and there's still, there's a lot of veterans out there, I think, who have done amazing work for their community who have never taken the time to, and, and not just veterans, right? There's a lot of people, survivors, trauma survivors, who are doing amazing work for their communities and have never taken the time to do really to do the work with themselves right and it's like as long as i'm serving other people i don't then i'm healed i'm fine like i'm good and i think we trick ourselves into believing that right because if i'm a leader here even though i want people to get vulnerable and real and open what what does it mean if i do that right what does it mean if i'm vulnerable what does it mean if i fail what does it mean if i step back i can and it's one of the things that I think is really interesting as I've moved further away from my immediate military experience, um, the veteran status in some ways has become more of a privilege. Whereas in earlier years, when I was closer to my military experience, you know, my people interacted with me very differently, right? There was still this concern like, is, you know, is PTSD a communicable disease? Is um, adjustment disorder a communicable disease? And, and people wanted, you know, we've talked about this before, like the pet of it, right? Well, I said, thank you for your service, but I don't really want to have a larger conversation or engage. You had a great line that was like, um, whatever, put this song on the jukebox and give me a beer is not the reception I need <laughs> coming back. Right. It's not gonna do anything for exactly. you. Exactly. Right. But it makes people feel good. Right. And so uh, anyway, throughout all that, right. I mean, during the pandemic, um, I went from, you know, giving corporate talks and, you know, being flown around the country and put up in hotels and talking about leadership and passion and following your dreams and talking about failure and, and overcoming failure and adversity to pitching boxes at FedEx and then driving a forklift at Specialized. And, um, and I was super thankful for those opportunities. And it was community members who supported me and said, hey, this is what I can give you right now. And this is how I can help you. And it was awesome. And I'm so thankful that I had um, those experiences, if nothing else, for the people I got to meet because and, and hang out with. And especially, you know, the Specialized crew was awesome. And just a super fun group of, of men and women that I got to work with and ride bikes with and I'm still in touch with. And, you know, one of my last stops when I left Utah was to swing by the warehouse to say goodbye um, because we weren't going to have a chance to ride bikes. Um, but during that time, I definitely remember thinking, like, war has broken me. Like, like there's a ceiling I can get to and I can't get past it. And war has broken me and it's it's not like I just need to learn to live with this deep wound and how to move with it and um, like I, I can only get so healthy and then I'm just gonna keep breaking right I can only get to the certain point and so there were times where I was like what the fuck like like I just can't recover from this um, war was so brutal and and we know from like you know Florence Williams's research and her book around heartbreak that that something like 15% of people never aren't ever able to move on um, from heartbreak. And I think, you know, what's war and experiencing combat and loss of friends, if not heartbreak. And so when I heard that statistic, I remember asking myself, like, am I part of that 15%? And, and I don't think I am. Um, but I see this lust 
and belief in combat or war or these moments, these big melodramatic moments. And I think we just believe that we can wrap it up and then move on. And that's, you know, I mean, we've talked about this with the hero's journey, but that's, I think, because for war, all we're given in story, right, is that hero's journey for the most part. And that's, that's starting to shift there and has always shifted. There's always been other, other narratives out there. You know, I didn't read Ursula Gwynn until my, I think, early 40s. And she provides a very, you know, the carrier bag of fiction, a very different response to the hero's journey that isn't, you know, a very different response to storytelling. But I think it's that notion of like, you know, if we follow Odysseus back from war and he goes through all the trials and tribulations and then seven years with a nymph on an island and then he comes home and he, you know, kills all the usurpers to the throne who are trying to take his place. And, you know, and now all of a sudden Persephone, like she's gaslit almost as much as Helen, and then Odysseus sits back on the throne, and that's where the story stops. And I think where war gets us in trouble is is we don't have a lot of opportunities to think about what happens after we've returned home or to that throne, right? And with Odysseus, we only, we don't think about, and we never have a conversation about what is it, the 73 men who didn't make it back. We don't have a conversation about, I think it was Tetrarchus who was maybe, and I'm probably messing that up, who was maybe died by suicide or was killed by his wife's lover when he gets home. So we never see Odysseus grieve. We never see the family members of the lost um, soldiers grieve. And why do we consider Odysseus a hero at all if all those men died just so he could return? For what? Like, why is his leadership so valuable? We never dig into that. And um, I had an opportunity to speak with uh, a group of men a couple weeks ago who had almost all lost their sons or stepsons to death by suicide or drug overdose. And that's the story. Those are the stories we need to be telling because their children came home from the hero's journey. And those are the parents of the lost soldiers of Odysseus. And they're having the conversation and they're grieving. And in those stories and in those conversations and in those efforts to heal, I think are the, is the path forward for our nation to also heal and for our communities to heal. And so I don't know, man, I'd like to think that I'm strong enough or healthy enough or not that I'm strong enough, but that my community has been strong enough to help move me past war. But I will say that there are times where it feels like a, you know, kind of like an Al Bundy style trick knee and it comes in it it hits you when you least expect it. And I don't know how deep, you know, it's like the, you know, sometimes you step off a curb and you break your, you know, and you break your foot and you can't walk anymore. And um, I never really know where war is gonna come snag me, but I've also tried to realize that pain and heartache and struggle are a part of the journey that's part of life. And I don't want to you know, there's only so much risk management, like catastrophic things are going to happen, whether or not you prepare for them, they're still going to happen. And that's not to say don't act with a certain amount of risk management and safety protocol in life, emotionally, physically, financially, but you also have to go live life because if you're always trying to prevent war from coming back in, what am I losing on experiences of joy and connection with my daughter, my wife, you, you know, friends, random strangers. So, so I don't know. 
I mean, I, I think I moved on in a lot of ways, but um, I don't think it's a resin that ever leaves your soul. The numbers for, you know, suicide of veterans is pretty staggering too, huh? It is. What really sucks about that is, is that it's not that much higher than the death by suicide rate for the United States in general. Wow. And I think that's the hard thing for any veteran sometimes to acknowledge, for me anyway, I don't want to speak for others, has been that our story is mirrored in the broader population. I think because we're an easier group to containerize, we can think about 22 veterans a day who die by suicide as you know, when only one to 2% of the population, 5% maybe of the population has a connection to the military or served, it feels like a very large number, but it's, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's not that much higher, I don't think, or, or it hasn't been from, you know, the sheer amount of death by suicide or attempted suicide or suicidal behaviors that might include um, reckless uh, drug use um, or, you know, drug use with an intent or um, a willingness to die to include alcohol consumption. Um, and that's what I think is the even more startling number. The fact that we're not the outlier mm -hmm. that we'd like to think we are. Yeah, it's just a uh, very American problem. Uh, I, f I feel like you've done, and I don't know, maybe this is just the way I see it, but you've done so much for your community like since writing this story. I think one of the biggest um, issues I have with just people in general, modern people, is like we just kind of spout out these issues that are trending and then we don't actually do work based on what we care about. And I'm guilty of that too. You know, I, I, I think it's sometimes it's hard to find your one issue to focus on, but you've traveled the world um, with adventure, not war. You've, you'll have, and even just being the conversationalist that you are, you've, you've just done so much on a broad level for your community. And I just want to just really thank you on, on behalf of, of the outdoor community mm -hmm. for just being yourself and doing what you do. Um, how much of your, your motivation comes from your love of community? How much of it just comes from wanting to be a good person to do the work? What, what does that kind of look like in your, your motivation behind all this stuff you've done? And we can talk about it more specifically of the places you've gone and what you've done with Adventure Not War, but what do you think your source of, of all of this is? I don't know, man. I think, you know, I, that's, you're saying really nice things and I, and I appreciate that. I mean, I think for me, the source is just always trying to figure out like how, you know, in many ways it's very selfish. Like how can I get healthier and how can I help those around me get healthier and how can I have an arg a conversation with somebody that's not an argument, you know I mean? And, and for years, I'm not boring. Really hard on <laughs> you're never, boring. you're always years, an I interesting tried. person to talk to for years I always tried really hard like you know can we engage people on social media can there be conversations what does that look like and but you know and I don't know I mean it's I mean social media is just we're just kind of hitting each other right it's not That's a conversation it. I mean, no, it's not a conversation <laughs> not it's, a conversation it's an opportunity for me to share my ideas and that's it. And, and for me to tell you why I'm right and you're wrong or whatever. And, and I think a lot of it though, around, you know, I mean, for me, the outdoors was so good and for me, and then what led me to, you know, start veterans expeditions with Nick and then work for Sierra club outdoors for so long was this idea at first that if it's so good for me, how good can it be for other people? Because I didn't believe that I really needed that work. Right. I didn't believe that I was worthy of, um, 
of feel, of having the feelings I had um, and being experiencing the trauma I had and struggling with it the way I had. And so I wanted to, I think in a lot of ways, the work was to justify my own sense of failure and hurt and pain, which I didn't believe I deserved. So some of it is around self-flagellation, I think, and I, which is too bad, but I've, I've got to a point where I think it's really around community, meeting other people and just recognizing for me that, you know, I mean, the Dalai Lama said it first, right? The purpose is joy. And that's where I think it comes from is we live in this incredibly beautiful world. And there's a lot of things that are going horribly wrong. And yet there's still so much beauty and opportunity to be found. And how do we find that? And how do we share that with other people? And if we share enough of it, will somebody pick up a piece of it and move forward with it in their own life? And I think that's where it's really easy to get distracted by the talking heads and Twitter and Facebook. And, and, but all that stuff is designed to distract and anger because that's how we stay engaged. But then, you know, the hour before you and I started talking, I was working with this amazing group of people. We just got introduced to try and think about how we do a better job connecting parks and people to parks and wayfinding to different parks here in Grand Rapids. And these are people who love technology and they're thinking about technology in such a different way, as a way to engage, as a way to connect, not as a way to sell a product, not as a way to surveil, not as a way to collect more data, but as a way to create more joy. And and I think that's fundamentally that 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 love of community, that love of exploration that's what I want to do. That's where I want to connect. And I want um, to hopefully leave a map behind that other people can say, here's one way you can do it. And and maybe I'm inspired to try to take this turn or that turn, but I'm not going to do this whole thing, but I, I can go out and I can take that. And I think that's the thing, because that's what I got from so many people. You know, when I look back on, you know, I, you, you've heard me talk about my great aunt Mildred before, and she, here she is, this amazing individual who grows up you know, and uses, again, has access to war through World War II, which then gives her access to the world and exploring the world in Japan and living in Japan for four years after World War II and everything else like that. And why couldn't she have done that without war? But I think she just kept relentlessly pursuing joy. And I think that's what I want to do. That's beautiful. And I now it's seeming to me it's like our paths had to cross because even though we come from such different backgrounds in some ways, um, you being a better, a veteran and me, not like when you were fighting in Iraq, I was just like <laughs> being a dirt bag and eating peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> but we, I think we were both on this mission that we wanted a, a community to be a part of and like, you know, turn the compost and like see what's there and, and have our own little space in it. And I, I feel like in, in different ways, we both kind of achieve that and, my the greatest like thrills of my life are like interacting with people face to face you know I, I get great letters and emails and stuff but like when you actually interact with someone face to face and you kind of like share this joy and if it's it's related in something that I wrote or something someone else wrote th- those are like the best moments I feel like is when you can just really connect and kind of transcend yeah the the greater like consciousness or um greater worries that we all have and like have a have a good moment you know totally yeah 100 percent. and i think that's the thing right like war creates this transcendent opportunity to meet people from around the country and around the world but so does adventure 
and 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 that's what we're looking for right and i mean even the other night i, I was having a really shitty day and a couple some really bad news and about a partnership that had failed and that i was still surprisingly raw about and you know we couldn't find a dog sitter so we couldn't go camping and and then here i am like in this crappy place and feeling all alone by myself and then i looked around and you know I have this beautiful house that i'm really privileged and lucky to have and one of the reasons i've talked about moving out here to michigan was for the loons and the lightning bugs and i looked up and there's you know dozens of lightning bugs just doing what they do and just feeling that moment of like you've got everything you said you wanted what are you what are you so angry about mm. love lightning bugs yeah me too <laughs> lightning, lightning bugs and, yeah they're just so fun <laughs> yeah um one other random funny moment of my interactions with you because i feel like you're i have these friends and i it's it's strictly through the zine it's like i don't i don't i don't know if most adults have like all these pen pal friends you know or maybe it's our mm, community yeah. that because i feel like i have these just like you're like a pen like i i don't like it's been years since i've seen you it might be another year before i see you again but that doesn't mean we don't get to have like a very you know meaningful um friendship you know right no totally because we're writing more than 180 characters to one another. <laughs> That's a really good point. And because we do have, yeah, and we have some, you know, yeah, I mean, and we've created things together. And, um, yeah, I mean, the highlight of OR for years was, you know, I mean, it was like, gosh, can I, like, how do I get an hour to an hour and a half of just, like, hanging out with you? Or And, and Sean Matasevich has been a big part of that, right? And it's just like, I know, like, I just get giddy the day that we're going to hang out, right? Just for... Um, and the only other person that's come close to that is when Brady Robinson and I were rolling around on the floor of the convention center laughing so hard. <laughs> and so, like, I've had that once with Brady, and I had that every show with you and Sean. And I think to a point where Brady actually probably avoided me at shows. <laughs> the story that actually led me down that random grabbit hole of a thought was um, when we presented together before and i was like all nervous i was like oh, i wonder if stacy is like prepared we, we did a presentation i think at the black diamond store in salt lake city mm-hmm. a little nervous i was like i know i got my shit together but does stacy really like know what he's doing he doesn't seem very prepared and then you got there and you like delivered this amazing presentation and then afterwards you're like dude i was on the debate team in college like you don't have to worry about me <laughs> <laughs> that was another just yeah, awesome solid. like surprising moment like oh yeah stacy's um, and I guess the greater the greater context of that thought is is storytelling, and that's where I you know I, I knew this time would fly by, and we're like almost fifty minutes deep already. But I just really wanted to kind of pick your brain about storytelling, and um, you've uh, you've definitely been doing it the hard way, I guess. Um, but I think you know I, I've always believed that you're going to write a book, and and it'll probably be wild, more Me wildly too. successful than any of my books. Um, and I think it's going to be an insightful for any other artist and storyteller too, but you've, you've just gone through, you know, you've had, you've probably had a million rough drafts. You've had two, two essays you've published with me. You've had countless editorials um, where, you know, like what insight do you have um, for how you tell your stories and why you keep coming back? Cause I think so many people I see give up on their journey of writing that are such great writers that have had so much interesting things happen. They give up because it's hard. 
um, what what keeps you going and what what really interests you in, in exploring um, storytelling? Yeah, thanks. That's that's a really fun question. I mean, and and I I just really like the process. I think I continue to shock myself with what I write. I continue to find and discover new things about myself, and I think that's part of the reason I write so itinerantly right now. Um, there's a lot of other things going on. There's work. There's a daughter. There's a partner. There's um, you know we we moved to Michigan. We're new to Michigan. There's exploration. There's um, and and I think there's paralysis right around. I still have depression. I still have those things. Um, but I think for me, writing has always been you know climbing saved my life. But what are the things that sustained it to get to to that you know? And it's it's music and art and writing and reading right and finding these other experiences and so. You know, I just, um, I think that's why I keep coming back to it. And there's ideas I want to explore more deeply. And I think where I'm at now, and I think we have these platforms, right, that we can just scream out or shout out. And I oftentimes go down a, a, one of those paths of like, well, I'm going to, I want to tell everybody about this or why this one thing is wrong or whatever. But oftentimes there's no context. People don't understand why maybe I'm responding to this, that, or the other thing. And, and I, I think it's just that opportunity to explore a deep idea. And I think where I'm at now, and I, I set out a couple years ago, and I thought it was going to be a year journey, and it's taken a much longer time, but there were really three pieces that I felt like if I could write, I could begin to triangulate on a much broader book. And um, one of those pieces is still in the editing process. I know Katie, um, a response at The Alpinist, and, it, and that was my response to The Hero's Journey, which started out as a flippant comment on Facebook. And um, somebody was like, well, you should, you know, Katie was like, you should write about this. And then that was one of them because I think I was so committed to the hero's journey for so long and now see so many flaws in it. And that's what um, they teach. I think it's like, fine. That's what, it, that's, that's, what they teach. that's what they teach. But, yeah. but the problem with the hero's journey is that it, it, it is one individual trying to create all this change in their lives at the expense, I think, of almost everybody else. And it's even like superheroes, like it, it's a decent story, but why is Spider-Man and Superman and Batman, why do we think they're so great? They're not creating long-term systemic change. They're just reactionaries. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious and, in a weird way. I don't know why I, I just laughed at that, <laughs> just the way you presented right, but it's it. Like, it's like, yeah. <laughs> Did fucking Spider-Man build a homeless shelter or whatever, you know? Like, no. <laughs> or right. does he, no, like, he start didn't. a food Did bank? <laughs> nope. <laughs> he didn't. And he's not even trying. He's not right? even going to ever do that. <laughs> no. And, like, Batman's like, we have a world full of crimes, so I'm going to invest millions of dollars in tactical gear and a dark rubber mask. <laughs> It's like, dude, address, you know, systemic food inequity and um, create, you know, like fund universal income for the residents of Gotham <laughs> and create access for healthcare and like, you know, and mental health and like probably, you know, folks like the Joker aren't going to fall through the cracks. <laughs> like that guy needed help, you know, and you didn't give it to him. All right. This like, has to be some notes on your book too. Like you could tweak that somehow. <laughs> right. Exactly. Why, this is why I'm mad at Batman. <laughs> um, and I loved those books as a kid, but they're stories and, and stories are so important and we live our life based off those stories, but we're not telling enough other complex, nuanced stories that are, that are sharing those things and the joy of those things and, and, and building things is not easy and tearing them down is. And that's why we like superheroes because they're, 
it's it, it seems easy right but it's like and it's why we love the rags to riches story but why can't instead of rags why can't everybody just have t-shirts but then like because we're not pushing one person to the extreme top right and um that was the story of the rap game in american professional sports but if you look at where professional sports even are going now right it's it's the youth of past professional sports who are now afforded the opportunity because we've created this fucked up financial incentive but we always want to cheer for the underdog because they're overcoming these huge systemic odds versus just remove the barriers to to health and success and um but i think for writing for me it's just it's it's a lot i get a lot of value out of it and i think it's the thing that I think we, you know, we all have to ultimately come to is, is would you do it even if you couldn't post about it? Um, would you do it even if nobody reads it? And I think that's, you know, you encouraged me to write because you're like, I think you got a great story and there's a lot of interesting ideas and, um, and I have a platform that I would like to, to give you for that. And, and I've had other people say that. So I think it's just to keep coming back to that because I get such a thrill about that and such a thrill when but and then it's kind of fun too i wrote so that that one piece was around the hero's journey the second piece was a was an essay that uh trout unlimited published in trout it's not even online just about um my experiences fishing with my dad who has dementia and alzheimer's and my dad you know really the last i mean he he vaguely knows who i am sometimes he strongly knows who i am but um we were on a fishing trip um, a couple of years ago, and we had we had fished the below the um, Flaming Gorge Dam a few times, and he remembered, like he remembered fishing, right? He remembers, oh, do you remember when this happened? And he had a very clear recall, and he wanted to tell me about it. But as we were coming out of the river and driving driving back uh, to where we were staying, my dad said to me, you know, he said, do you think we'll come back next year? And you know, and in my head, I was like, there's no way, right? Like the decline is so fast, like like no um and he's like well i'm in great shape we'll be back next year but you know and he looked at me and it was the first time that i had seen terror and fear in his eyes as i've watched this um process ravage his mind and his and his and his body and his soul and his fear was but will the river be there and so like even this recollection deep down in my dad and his fear about you know will the river continue to flow i'll be here but will the river continue to flow um, and that was his concern. And so I wrote that and then the hero's journey. And then there's this other piece that, uh, I've been off again, on again with, a with a writing partner at Clemson, um, an incredible, incredible individual and professor, uh, Jasmine Townsend. And, and that is trying to write about, you know, what are the mistakes we made, um, in military veteran outdoors and, and, and what can we learn from those mistakes? Because what I wanted to do with that is really say like, what are the things that I think we need to model in the world? And one of those is acknowledging, accepting, and moving on from failure. And so that's one of the, you know, like I can't get our political leaders to do that, but I can do that. And I think that's what's so cool about writing is that I've, like you, I mean, I've had great interactions with people from all over who are like, hey, I read this thing um, and it meant a lot to me or it, it made me think about this or I read this thing and I really disagree with you and it really pissed me off. And then I'm able to think about things in a whole new way. And I think for me, like, I don't know, if I had to do it all over again, I, in my head, I would have committed to writing and fully committed to writing a lot earlier. But now there's all these other things that I'm enjoying and doing as well. Um, but storytelling just continues to be such an important part of that for me. And that's why I think it's just worth, it's worth going back because whether or not anybody else reads it, 
um, the words matter to me and, and maybe they matter to somebody else. And, um, yeah, it'd be awesome to be a New York times bestseller and to get paid to write books and have other people give me more money to, Hey, go write a book or what do you want to write? But, um, I get to have a pretty cool life anyway. And I think, I think the fact that you, you stick with it is to me as an editor, um, and a fellow writer, the most admirable and, and easily the most important too. Um, cause I feel like even as a writer, even with someone who, you know, when people ask me what I do for a living, I say I'm a writer, but, um, I've been struggling to write my next book for three years, even though I, I have less time, but I do have all the time. Um, so I think just the fact that you have that humility to fail and then stick with it is like, just says so much about your character. And, um, I think oh, there's, thanks a lot for people to learn from that. And, and also that point you made about discovery. I think that's such a cool thing about writing. And I think that's maybe why every person who is like an active poster on Instagram with all these profound thoughts of a 22 year old or whatever, the, those people should write just as much that they don't publish and they don't share. And they might like reveal something to themselves in that deeper state of just like exploring their mind. And, I just think, I think that's a really interesting point, especially for like our younger writers, like just to, to use writing at, or any artistic thing as a way to just like get to know yourself better. hundred percent. And I think that's where, you know, you saw in the pandemic, you know, a lot of people took the time and um, realized there were a lot of things that weren't going great in their own lives. And they found ways to dig into that and had access to resources maybe that other people didn't. And then there were a lot of other people that saw that and got really scared and frightened and wanted to blame everybody else for it and move on. And, um, and that's where I think there's that broad kind of divide and one of the big cleaves that's happening in our country right now. And it's like, you know, it, it may not be your responsibility. You may not have been, you may not have caused it, but now it's here. What are you going to do? Right. Going back to, to, to the great Len Nessifer, right. You don't have to, you don't have to judge what happened by our current standards, but you have to recognize what those impacts are and how do you move forward. And I think um, that's where I struggle at sometimes, you know, if I'm just staring at a blank page and what am I gonna write, what am I gonna say? And if I'm writing to create something perfect, it's never gonna work. But if I'm writing because I need to get it out there and there's something in me, you know, and, and you've done such a good job of being able to find those threads and ask me the questions about which thread do you really wanna follow and let's focus in on that. And um, that's where that self-discovery comes from. But if you're just constantly posting or trying to out-profound one another, it's it's never going to work. And I think, you know, I mean, you look at a guy like, um, oh, why can't I think of his name? He wrote Ham on Raw. Um, just so many of the authors that are out there, you know, they, they did it because they, they had to. Because it was, you know, they weren't trying to necessarily get rich or anything, but they, they were writing the books, they were writing the words because they had to. And at some level, I think that's where I'm at is I just oftentimes just have to get the words out. How lucky are we that we have this community of everyone who's listening or everyone who reads that we have this exchange that's pretty profound and it's um, kind of outside of, we do use social media and different things to sometimes convey the message, but we can kind of um, live and cultivate this community that's maybe able to transcend the kind of um, lameness of like what modern America has become with everyone star staring at their phones 24 seven and we can um, get people to hopefully use their brains and think deeper and share our pain and um, you know 
grow our community as well. And, and, um, and I thank you for the platform, you know, I thank you for the opportunity and, and asking people to think and asking people to stare at the wall and think about things and, and respond. And, and that's where we've got to, I think, just keep gently encouraging people to think through it and what does it mean and, and get uncomfortable and be willing to evolve yourself and being willing to let other people evolve. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard work. It and is hard work, but we got to keep pushing and we um, do keep being be a community that, that grows, you know, that grows together and, and um, provides outlets. Yeah. yeah. And I think right now we're seeing what, you know, we're just seeing people who don't want to grow or who don't have access to the same level of connection and privilege that we do. Um, and they're frightened and they're scared of what's coming and they have every right to be scared. And yet, how do we, you know, and then every action has consequences, but how do we also, even in working with those consequences, find ways to be compassionate and help people move through that. And it's, I was talking with our, with the old, one of the county administrators here, and he had really worked super hard at the last county he was working with where um, the people who were giving the tickets for, you know, law violations were then ended up being from a customer service perspective were being nominated for awards because people had felt so engaged and seen and cared for um, by the individual who was writing them a ticket, right? And, and not that, and isn't that the level of customer service and human engagement we want where we can help people and if you make a mistake, we can make you feel deeply human about it versus shame and blame. Right. But it's hard and different people are going to take different roles on that. And what's expected out of guys like you and me is going to be different than what's expected or should be expected out of people who don't look like you and I. Well, let's, uh, let's keep telling our stories and keep being honest and keep building this, uh, this awesome community we have. Yeah. And thanks for creating a space where people can tell their story and hear other stories and, listen to different viewpoints, man. And hopefully whether it's out here with kites or back in Indian Creek or Soil boulders, or there's a new climbing area being developed a couple hours north of Toronto, uh, about six hours from here. Would love to go explore the North Woods with you. That would be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to doing some climbing with you here soon. Hopefully, maybe even in the Midwest. Totally. Yeah. Adventure can be anywhere, man. Definitely. All right. Well, much love, brother. I really appreciate it. Love you too, Luke. Here's to the zine. Oh. That was our second episode for season four, conversation with Stacy Bear. Really enjoyed that one. A couple plugs. We got um, volume 22 is our newest zine that came out this summer. Really proud of that issue and as things get tighter and tighter with print and we remain the only widely distributed rock climbing publication in the United States, um, I really wear it as a badge of honor that we get these things out even if they cost more to produce. Um, but we are definitely feeling the love as more and more subscribers has gotten on board this year. Super grateful for that and if you love this zine, support our Patreon or get some merch, subscribe in our online store, you can find a a link for 15% off in our show notes. 
Music from this episode is from Devin Dabney. Devin's been cranking out some awesome episodes at his podcast, American Climbing Project. Check that out. It's a super unique podcast, very much satire-based. His first season is all about racism in the outdoors and climbing and um, the role that race plays in our sport. Um, Some really funny stuff. Can't wait to follow his journey as he gets better and better because he's really good already this first season. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich and signing off from a good monsoon summer in Durango, Colorado. I'm Luke Mihal. Peace.